Chapter Two, Part Two of Shores of the Polar Sea, a narrative of the Arctic expedition of eighteen seventy-five seventy-six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Shores of the Polar Sea by Edward Lawton Moss, Chapter Two, Part Two. Folk Fjord is a narrow, ice-scooped inlet in the coast of Greenland, at the entrance of Smith Sound. Hayes made it his winter quarters, and Rensselaer Bay, where Kane spent his three winters, is close to the northward. On the shore of the fjord, and under the red granite cliff in foreground of the picture, a few ruined huts marks the site of the once populous Eskimo village of Itach, the capital of the Arctic Highlanders. At the head of the fjord an expanse of lake and valley leads to Brother John's glacier of Kane, stretching down in the shape of a huge pole from the inland ice beyond. This continental ice lies thousands of feet thick over what little is known of the interior of Greenland, and looks like a vast frozen sea, but that its level is sensibly above the horizon. It was now high time to get back to the ships, so, shouldering a specimen pair of reindeer horns and our hair, we took a direct course across the Doidge range, but found it by no means an easy one, for a steep ravine had to be crossed, and a rapid knee-deep stream waded before the hills of Reindeer Point were reached. On getting to the ship, we learned that a party of officers from the Discovery had been more successful than we were. Landing at the head of the inlet, they had searched the valley below Brother John's glacier, and climbed the cliffs on its southern side. There they found three reindeer, which led them a severe chase across the glacier. They finally secured one of them, and carried the best parts of the meat in to their boat, but not until one of the most active of the party was so much exhausted that it required the united exertions of the others to keep him awake. The ice, seen northwards from the hills over our anchorage at Port Folk, was met with off Cape Sabine the day after we left, and found to be altogether impenetrable. It was disheartening to see the ships come to a complete standstill under steam, and sail in the very first pack ice we encountered in Smith Sound. We were compelled again and again to return and shelter in a little harbour inside some islands three miles south of Cape Sabine. Our prospects seemed sufficiently discouraging. We had only reached the latitude of Dr. Kane's winter quarters, and here was an impassable barrier of ice stretching north and east, as far as we could see from the rocky hills over our harbour of refuge. Our chances of progress were often discussed, sitting round the table after dinner, and when one of us, hoping to gain support from opposition, suggested that perhaps we might have to winter here. It was, at first, treated as a joke, but after a half-dozen failures to advance, the subject was dropped as altogether too serious for discussion. Four days were spent in fruitless efforts to push through the tongue of pack stretching into Hayes Sound, and we thus got early experience of the necessity of a continuous coastline for ice navigation. At length, 
a fine lead of water opened round Cape Sabine into Hayes Sound. If we could not go north, we might at least go west, and hold ourselves ready to seize any opportunities for advance that the unknown waters of Hayes Sound might offer. After three or four hours' rapid steam and sail, in the line of water between the flows and shore, the sound was found to subdivide into a number of narrow inlets. The only available lane of water led into the first of these. As we passed into it, a strange landmark on the top of a long hill on its south side attracted our attention. If we had been in an inhabited latitude, no one would have hesitated to call it a house. We could only suppose it to be a gigantic and singularly square specimen of the boulders which here strew the surface of the country. The inlet did not run far, and we soon found ourselves brought up off a broad valley closed in landwards by the union of two large glaciers. The ships were secured inside some rocks to wait for the opening of the ice, which would probably occur next tide. The shores here were virgin ground, and parties were soon organized to explore the valley. It was two miles wide at its sea face, and not far from three in length. Precipitous hills rose on either side. Along the centre, a stream from the ice above had cut a watercourse, in some places as much as eighty feet deep, through the soft yellow sandstone. At the head of the valley, a wall of ice, formed by the junction of two glaciers, stood across it from side to side. The glacier on the right terminated in a perpendicular cliff seventy feet high, excavated along the ground, and with small streams spouting from blue fissures in its wall. That on the left was parallel with the former, but rounded off gradually to a sort of glaciers, covered with a thin layer of black mud, smelling strongly of decaying vegetable matter. Bunches of dead heather-like cassiopeia cropped up amongst the stones, within three feet of the sloping face of ice. The stream came down from an amphitheatre between glaciers, which, half a mile further on, met in a ridge, caused by the right-hand glacier being forced up over the left. We were greatly disappointed at finding no game in the valley. There was not even a ptarmigan or a hare to be seen, though tracks of both were numerous. Every gap in the banks of the watercourse was pitted with the footprints of reindeer or musk-oxen. A number of boulders strewed the valley, and every one that was large enough had been used as scratching posts by musk-oxen, as the white wool and brown hair on and around them testified. A splendid erratic block of red granite, twelve or fifteen feet high, lay in the south side of the valley, and round it a complete trench was worn deep into the ground by the footprints of musk-oxen as they rubbed themselves against it or stood under it for shelter. This glen was even more fertile than Port Folk, and would make a delightful winter quarters for an amateur arctic expedition. There was plenty of willow with large, well-grown leaves, and in many places the ground was covered with a perfect garden of dwarf flowers, even in the dry parts of the river-bed, patches of purple epilobium covered the sand. We could only account for the absence of game by supposing that the neighboring valleys were equally rich. An old reindeer antler was picked up, together with the skull of a bear, 
and at the upper end of the valley some remains of Eskimo igloos were discovered, with door-posts made of whale-ribs. Our furthest point in Hayes Sound was reached two days afterwards, and so far as we could see, the peninsula on our right was not an island. We subsequently saw that it, and the very similar headland next north of it, were parts of the same land, only separated by a curve in the coast with a low hill in the centre. We accordingly ceased to speak of our headlands as Henry and Bake Islands, and returned to their original titles, Capes Albert and Victoria. At length the long check at Hayes Sound came to an end. Some southward motion in the ice opened a lead round Cape Albert. It was at once taken advantage of, and when it closed in again the ships were well to the north of the Cape, but unfortunately completely imprisoned in close pack, drifting steadily southwards, and taking them with it. There was no fixed point to lay hold on. The long wall of horizontally banded cliffs was more than a mile off, and even if we could have reached it, there did not appear to be any little curve or hollow where we could have held our own. What little we had won seemed slipping from us. There was nothing to be done but wait patiently for the chances of the next tide. Tea had been cleared away in the wardroom, and logs were being written up and journals posted, when we were startled by sudden orders on deck. Full speed ahead, clear away jib, set for topsail, topgallant sail and foresail. We rushed on deck, expecting that a fine lead had opened northwards. But lo, the ships were still fast in the pack, and drifting right down upon an iceberg, two hundred yards long and forty feet above water, that crushed through the floes towards us. The alert was directly in its path. Men out on the ice ahead and astern tried to make way, unhauled with ice anchors and tackle. Full steam and sail failed to move her. The pack tightened every moment with increasing pressure. The roar of the crushing ice came nearer and nearer. And as the orders up-screw and up-rudders were given, those of us who were useless on deck went below to see that our messmates' haversacks were ready to be flung out on the ice alongside, if our ship's strong beams should prove unequal to the crush. In solitary possession of the wardroom, and quite undisturbed by the excitement on deck, our white cat, Pops, dozed peacefully in her favorite posture on a chair in front of the stove. When we went on deck again, the critical moment had come. The stern was clear of the berg, but the bow was in its direct path. The ice-pack, buckling and shoveling in front, caught the forepart of the ship and pushed her forcibly sternwards, swinging her half round into a stream of ice and water, sweeping past the berg. The danger was over, but our jib-boom was not four feet from the wall of ice. Such an opportunity of arresting our southward drift was not to be lost. Grappling appliances were already, and in a moment both ships were being towed comfortably along, in the wake of their old enemy. The events of the next day well illustrate the uncertainties of ice navigation. At 2 a.m., the ships had slowly struggled northwards until they were abeam of Cape Victoria, but there the ice closed in and nipped the ships close inshore under the cliffs. Rudder and screw were again raised to save them from the dangerous pressure, 
which increased till the floes sliding one under the other were forced landwards completely under the ship at that moment nothing could be more unpromising than the prospects of the expedition and yet twenty minutes afterwards we were steaming cheerily along through a good lead towards franklin and pierce bay by breakfast time we had crossed to the north-eastern shore of the bay and found further progress checked for the time by floes close packed against the rugged headlands to the north as the ships were secured to the edge of a broad flat floe lying between an island and the high conglomerate cliffs of the mainland several walrus were seen lying on a fragment of floe about a mile off their flesh would make a most valuable store of food for our dogs who had been living almost exclusively on preserved australian meat for they disliked dog biscuit accordingly a whaleboat with a harpoon gun in her bows was lowered and manned it was necessary to make a long detour new ice forming in the shadow of the cliffs impeded our progress and rendered a noiseless attack impossible our game however paid no attention to the noise we made scraping the ice with the oars and breaking a road with a paddle we soon got close enough to see that there were three of them lying close together occasionally one or other would rear himself slowly up displaying his double-lobed head and long gleaming tusks scratch his side lazily with his huge flipper and fling himself down again with a satisfied grunt beside his slumbering companions they lay on the edge of a flow we steered for the largest of the three and at length the broad arrowhead of a harpoon projecting from the muzzle of the gun was within five yards of the beast then with the flash the steel buries itself deep in his side a stream of blood spurts on the snow and all three walrus start up and heave themselves upright before plunging into the water looking as formidable game as any post-diluvian sportsman could desire but evidently too much frightened to attack a well-aimed bullet struck our victim's throat and shortened his death struggle ere long the drag on the harpoon line slackened and the huge carcass was drawn to the surface and towed slowly to the ship it measured twelve and a half feet from nose to tail eleven and a half in girth the tusks eighteen inches from gum to point gave the creature a savage appearance but their use was to dig up the mollusks on which he fed or to hook himself up on the ice floes the dogs were not alone in their appreciation of fresh meat we ourselves found some steaks by no means unpalatable though desperately tough and for some days walrus liver figured upon our breakfast table End of chapter two part two